The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and we've been off a little bit, and there's good reason for that. Chad has a new member of his family. Congratulations to Chad. I lost a member of mine. There's just been a lot happening, but we're back now, better than ever, and excited to be joined by Utah Symphony Associate Conductor, Connor Covington. Welcome, Connor. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. We've had a few conductors on this show, and it's really fun to talk about craft and the business. And I feel like your job, the associate conductor job, is the one that displays most clearly what's happening to the conductor profession right now in the orchestra world. There's just so much that's different than when your teachers did this. And I'm curious, you know, you train at some of the best schools in the country. You went to Curtis, you spent time at Eastman. So now that you're a pro, how do you look back on those years? Do you feel like that the conservatory flagship programs are preparing conductors well for what the landscape is today? I think to a certain extent they are. I mean, a lot of my training, uh, particularly at Eastman, I got a really great technical foundation, mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. And for especially for a, a staff conductor like myself, it's incredibly clear. It's incredibly important to be very, very clear because right. oftentimes your rehearsal as a staff conductor is very minimal. You get the most programs, least rehearsals. Yes, yeah. that's absolutely true. Right. So it's it's really important to be able to do as much with your hands as possible right. um, without having to say much in rehearsal. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of aspects to this job that you simply, I don't think any school could really teach. It's just... There's so much that goes into kind of interpersonal skills, how you deal yeah, with the music yeah. director, the other guest conductors, what your relationship is with is with is like with the orchestra, right, right. which is different because you know I I'm kind of in an authority role, especially when I'm on the podium, but I'm also not their boss, and they're fully aware of that. Sure. So um, do they remind you of that? <laughs> no, they they don't actually. They've yeah. been really wonderful. Yeah. I have yeah. a lot of great relationships in the orchestra. So, right. but there's other aspects. You know, for instance, the film concerts that I do is actually, there's a lot of aspects to that where I have to kind of ignore my training in a lot of ways. And um, you kind of have to not listen to the orchestra sometimes if you're playing with the click track, because as soon as you listen to them, you get off of the click track. Absolutely. Uh, So yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of learning on the job, I think, that comes along with with positions like these. Well, and I do want to circle back to the film concerts a little later in our talk, but you did hit on something that I think is maybe not terribly obvious to the people on the outside, and it's that the variety of work that you're asked to do, not just for our company, but any any company you would work for in this capacity, that is, it's really robust. It's not just education concerts or just films mm. or just pops or just classical or it's it's all of it yeah you have to you have to have the most well-rounded not just technique but base of knowledge you have to be able to function on short notice in so many different things so speaking of those realities just talk a little bit about like what's what's your life like what is what is this job like just describe it like what's a week in the life of connor covington look like so a week in the life actually varies widely from sure. week to week yeah. um for instance, last week we had uh, we had Ben Folds rehearsal Tuesday morning, concert Tuesday night. Wednesday right. morning, I was covering for uh, a subscription concert with uh, 
two pieces, actually three pieces I didn't know at all. So uh, this uh, was the program that we just did with Sinaiski. Yeah, yeah the, so Kodai, right. Dances of Galanta, Rachmaninoff, fourth piano concerto. Very which weird is, piece. Actually, was the had <laughs> never been done before yeah. by the Utah Symphony. I know. And Neither had the 12th Symphony and Shostakovich. Right. 12. So right. these were, and so I have to be ready whenever I'm covering, I have to be ready to step in. So that's right. all completely new repertoire for me. Yeah. Um, for instance, this week we have, I'm doing two programs, uh, Story Pirates, which is a family program, yep. which has kind of some standard repertoire on it, as well as uh, Troop Vertigo, which also has some really great standard repertoire on it, like Bordine Polovetsian dances, Gershwin Cuban Overture, all of the Firebird suite. Um, luckily, most of those pieces I, I know pretty well, but several right. of them I've never conducted before. Sure, sure. So it's, uh, it's very fast-paced, but it's also, you know, anybody in a position like mine eventually wants to go on to be a music director somewhere. So it's, it's really actually kind of incredible training sure. for uh, what's going to come down the road. And it also forces you to be able to learn repertoire really fast, which yep. is a, a very important skill to Quickly have. and adaptably too, I'm yeah. sure. So um, you talked about covering, and that's one of the parts of the job that people know least about. And it's mm -hmm. the idea that you're studying all the scores for the Masterworks concerts and sort of being not, not an understudy, but being on deck. Mm. Because if something happens, conductor falls, conductor gets sick, you've got to jump in. Now, the business is littered with these jump-in moments. Have you had yours yet? I haven't. Oh, it's going to happen. Everyone's, everyone's, you know, most of the people they bring here are relatively young and healthy. Yeah, so. yeah. you haven't <laughs> so had your hasn't, chance yet. Hasn't had my, chan my chance yet. One of the things I know that it takes a big part of any week in the life of Connor Covington is thinking about and executing education programs. And I know that's a really important part of most orchestras' profiles in this nation. So explain what goes into making effective program for schools, what your role is in that, um, uh, what you've learned about what elements work for kids and what don't. I mean, just talk a little bit about that process. So often we kind of, uh, and when I say we, I mean myself and Kylene Johnson, who's the symphony education manager, we kind of come up with a, a theme for mm -hmm. what we want each mm -hmm. concert to be. And then we select repertoire to uh, kind of go along with that theme. And we select different excerpts, sometimes a whole movement, sometimes just a section of a movement. And then we write a script to go along with it. So each, actually, it's it's a lot of work. Sure. But, you know, and a lot of, a lot of my colleagues in other staff conductor capacities, they're kind of told this is what you're going to do. But here I'm given actually a tremendous amount of creative license. It's kind of a blank piece of paper, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so it's a lot of work, but it's also yeah. a lot, it's very rewarding because sure. this program you're creating from scratch. And so for instance, our uh, main education concerts this past season, um, for the uh, we had two kind of full education concerts. The the first was uh, storytelling in music, and right. that was for kind of the younger audience. Right. And that had oh uh, oh it had I think flight to Neverland sure. from Hook and oh Firebird mm -hmm. Suite and Last Moment of Berlioz Symphony Fantastique and all very kinds programmatic of, music. Yeah, yeah right. and then the the program for the secondary kids, kind of late middle school and high schooler kids, was Shakespeare right. in music. And so we did uh, Bernstein West Side Story Overture, some excerpts from Mendelssohn Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet and Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So. Um, it's really, it's very rewarding to be able to do those kinds of programs because you kind of create them from scratch. And, yeah. and you know, working with 
somebody like Kyleen is very helpful for me because I'm obviously not trained in what's, you know, what's the best way to most effective learning tool for a fifth grader. I don't necessarily know that. So she's very helpful in the script process in, you know, when I, I kind of write it originally and she's like, oh, I think you should phrase it this way. Right. To okay. Gear it towards this, this audience age. So you're getting that advice from her. But I, I'm curious from your experience though, I mean, does, does humor work with the kids or do you try to be more serious or is it yeah, a mix? Or? It's, it's, it's a mix. I yeah. think, um, for me, what's important, particularly for, well, actually for both the, the elementary and the middle and high schoolers is to not talk down to them. Absolutely. Um, it's important to make it clear and concise and easily understandable. But as soon as you, because I know this because I was absolutely this way from when I was very young, if I felt someone was talking down to me, I really was very absolutely. upset because right. it was kind of, I felt like they were demeaning my intelligence sure. or something. So um, I think it's kind of important to give them the benefit of the doubt with these kinds of programs. And oftentimes they'll surprise you with how quickly they'll catch on to things. I can tell you from personal experience, before I ever got into the orchestra business, I was an elementary school music teacher for six years. And I remember there were two administrators at my school and one would get on the intercom and speak to the kids in a very sing-songy kind of baby voice. Mm -hmm. And the kids shudder right out, hmm. just wouldn't listen at all. And another administrator would get on the intercom and say, all right, Ladies and gentlemen, I need your attention. Here's what you need to know. Just spoke to them like they were just small people. Mm -hmm. They responded to that. Yeah. So I think it echoes what you're saying. I think the talking down to thing is a very important lesson you've probably learned, maybe through a little experience or maybe through instinct. No, I think through instinct okay, because good. I was yeah. very I was very attuned to that from when like I you first, said it affected first you. First got here. Sure. Yeah. Um, we talked about the films and concert a minute ago, and I want to sort of branch into that a little bit because I would bet that you would admit that your job has taken you down a couple of unexpected paths. You probably didn't think you'd be doing as much of that as, as you are. The, the problem, Connor, is that you are really good at it. <laughs> you made the mistake of being really good at it. These films in concert, as you said, sometimes have click tracks, sometimes don't, but all the time have complications, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with lining up to the picture. So, I mean, the fact that you're doing so much of that and the fact that you're doing so much sort of non-classical repertoire in your day-to-day -day life, has that sort of changed your perception of what this job is and what it should be? And is it, has it changed your trajectory as a conductor, do you think? Um, to a certain extent, I, I don't think it's uh, changed my trajectory. At least I hope it hasn't. Um, you know, I I got into this profession because I love... Beethoven and Brahms right. and Mozart and all that stuff. And that's kind sure. of what I want to do mostly ultimately. But you know, a lot of these uh, doing these films and concerts are really rewarding. I mean, for instance, doing Jurassic Park was inc an incredible experience. Sure. It's good music. And it's great music. Yeah. And for instance, we're doing Star Wars yeah. in a few weeks and yeah. I'm beyond excited I, about I'm that. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, um yeah, it's just a it's a very different experience, but it, it can also be really rewarding mm -hmm. in its own right. And it's also, for me, I look at it as they're kind of, most of the films are incredibly difficult right. to do right. um, because you're, you know, the music itself is difficult. And then you have the added layer of lining it up with the movie. And it's not like lining an opera up because at least the opera singers can react to you. The, yeah. This movie, once it starts, it does not change. Absolutely not. So... Um, so yeah, it's, uh, 
it's a very kind of different skill set, but in, in a lot of ways, because it's so difficult, it stretches my technique and I feel yeah. like it's just making me a better conductor. See, overall. that's the, th- that's the thing that occurs to me is that even if your next job doesn't have any of this kind of experience in it, you're getting battle tested right now. Mm, yeah. You're going to have thicker skin. You're going to be a lot tougher for the neck for whatever the next thing is. I do think it's interesting to note though, that your next job, you know, your first music director job, if it's, if it's anything less than at a major symphony, if it's a regional orchestra, you're going to be doing a lot more than just classical. Yeah. Those music directors sort of do a lot. They do pops. They do family. Yeah, they do. that's true. So in, in that way, I think the fact that your job is so varied with so many different things happening in it is actually good preparation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For, for it's, it's, really great, it's really great training yeah. for, for me. And, you know, when, when people ask me, oh, are, do you have experiences with this? Do you have experience with this? And I'm like, yes, all of it. All of it. <laughs> all of <laughs> this it. point, basically. And a lot of all of it. Yeah. So it, it just, it, I think it, um, like I said, it, even though it's not a, it's not a Brahms symphony, it's, it's a new challenge. Right. And at the end of the day, I come out of it a better conductor because sure. it, it has stretched me in ways that I've never been stretched before. Very much a reality in today's sort of orchestral landscape too, films and concert. I mean, we've, we've had Justin Freer on the show. Mm. We had, uh, we did an interview with Justin Hurwitz, the composer of La La Land on the oh, show, because okay. we did that in concert, if you recall, yeah. a couple summers ago. Um, you mentioned Beethoven and Brahms and I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about the good stuff. Okay. You know? And anytime I ask a conductor sitting at these microphones what their Desert Island composer is, who's their favorite, they always say, oh, the one I'm working on now. Yeah, it's I, think, the, I think that's a ridiculous answer. I, for, oh, good. For, I'm for, glad to hear that. For the so record. What are your favorites? What are your first loves? Where do you gravitate towards repertoire-wise, personally? Um, you know, my first loves were really Beethoven and, and Mozart. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For me, I used to kind of have a top five. I think it was like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, Dvorak, and Brahms. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, and because to me, Dvorak is one of the most underrated composers. I think he's absolutely as good as, as Brahms was. But it's it's kind of since expanded. In the past five or six years, I've really fell in love with Richard Strauss. Uh-huh. Um, easy to do. Yeah, it's very, very easy to do. Easy to do. Yeah. And, you know, for a long time, I really did not like Mahler. Hmm. Um, but I, there are, you know, one and two I just love, four and love. So gradually as, as I get older, um, these things are starting to, I'm starting to fall in love with them more. And, and I've always, you know, it's funny, I talk with 
Toby, our artistic administrator, about yes. Bruckner because he loves Bruckner. I do too. And I try every year yeah. to, I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to a Bruckner symphony. And I'm like, I should love this music, but I don't yet. And Toby's yeah. like, well, you're just too young. Uh, so maybe so. Maybe in 10 years. I'll let's have you back it. on the show once that happens yeah. because I think you and I could talk about Bruckner for hours. Chad <laughs> would have a really tough time editing yeah. that down to a <laughs> listenable link. <laughs> Wouldn't that be, you know, apropos to talk about Bruckner for um, hours? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of repetition, a lot, yes. lot of sequencing, yeah. Um, that's great. And I, so if, if Mahler is sort of one of your new passions, are there any others? Are there any composers that you're sort of, like Bruckner, trying to approach and trying to teach yourself to love? Um, not necessarily kind of teaching myself to love, but every now and then I'm kind of reminded of these composers that I think are, like, for instance, uh, Martineau. Yeah, I right. think he's just an, an unbelievable composer. And every now and then I'll hear a piece and I'm like, oh, yeah. right, that guy's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And so then I'll kind of go off on a Martineau tangent sure. for a couple of weeks or something like that. But yeah, there's so many great composers. And I'm I'm also constantly trying to introduce myself to to living composers and of newer course. music as, of as well because there's there's so much out there and there's a lot of really great stuff being written today mm-hmm. in my opinion. Well, this it's it's important that you're establishing those relationships not just for your own sort of edification but for them because yeah. composers nothing works like having a conductor in their pocket. Yeah. Having a conductor that believes in their work and is willing to carry it out into the world on all of their guest appearances, that is huge, huge for composers. So I thank you on their behalf that you're (laughs) paying attention to what they're doing. Um, Before I let you go, Connor, because I know you've got a rehearsal this morning, I have to ask you the question. We ask all of our guests because of our name. I want to know, Connor Covington, have you ever seen a ghost? And if so... Give us some details. I have never seen a ghost, but I will tell you, I believe in ghosts. I'm, all right. And I think that anyone who says they're not real is, that's, I think that's silly. Really? I think it's obvious that they're real. What makes you say that? I just, I, I used to watch a show when I was a kid called Unsolved Mysteries. Sure. <laughs> sure. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, and it would scare me to death, yeah. but I constantly would watch it. Yeah. And just all those ghost stories when I was a kid, I'm like, there's got to be something to this. Yeah. And, you know, every now and then you see kind of wind rustling or something weird happens mm-hmm. in the house. And and I try to just, you know, take it in stride because I think most ghosts are probably pretty nice. Yeah, right. So, you know, I just try to say, okay, well, I'm living in this house. We can we can live here together. You're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have a roommate. I had no idea. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that notion that the world is full of ghosts, but that they're mostly very nice. I, it sounds to me like you're open to seeing one, and someday oh, yeah. you probably will. Probably so. Well, Connor Covington, thank you so much for being a guest on the Ghost Light Podcast. Good luck with everything. Thanks for having me. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.